This is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, June 30th, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. I'm Buster Only, working from New York today. Sarah Abbott, Taylor Schwenk, working from up in the Bristol area. How you guys doing? Buster, I'd be doing better if 4th of July wasn't on a Tuesday this year. This is really cramping my style. Now we got to get to work on Monday. I know it's hashtag no days off for you, but for me, I like a day off. Yeah, I don't want to hear any about any of that. That sounds <laughs> totally like first world problems. Yeah, well, Sarah, I'm a first world think? guy. <laughs> Sarah, what do you think? If only our founding fathers would have thought of how this would. <laughs> Sarah, you almost made me directly. spit my coffee on my laptop. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Okay, so to set the schedule for next week, Taylor, we're going to do Monday. Uh, it looks like Monday, Wednesday, Friday with podcasts next week. It's going to be a regular work for us. Yeah. A, reg- a regular week of work for us. Yes, indeed. So so no no need to adjust. You know, normally we take Memorial Day, Labor Day off, but because it's on a Tuesday, we'll be working on Monday. So you'll have a fresh I, new podcast. I can hear the sigh in your voice. You were hoping <laughs> that the, you know, the July 4th uh, would be fall on a Monday. Uh, you could have three-day weekend and then no podcast on I Monday. I know. It's no, my favorite holiday. I mean, we would still do three podcasts for the people, but, you know, it's it's my favorite holiday. It takes the juice out of it a little bit. Um, but we'll press on. No big deal. Everybody. Okay. Well, yesterday we found out that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is going to get back to competing in the Home Run Derby. He competed in 2019, put it on an amazing show. Uh, they sent out on social media yesterday from his account that he's going to be in the field. We've already heard from Julio Rodriguez of the Seattle Mariners. We've already heard from Mookie Betts. Then I've heard some other names floating around. All I'm going to say is it's looking like a pretty good field uh, in the Home Run Derby. And uh, later, after that announcement, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. demonstrated how good he could be in a home run derby. The Blue Jays were in the midst of a tie game, 0-0, against the Giants. Chris Bassett had pitched really well, six scoreless innings. This is what Vladdy did. The 2-2. Swing and a high fly ball. Out to deep left field. Peterson back at the wall. Goodbye! He was nodding earlier. He just missed one, and then he got one. A go-ahead two-run homer. That from Sportsnet 590. The fan, the Jays, win that game over San Francisco 2-1. A badly needed win. And, Taylor, as of this morning, the three American League wildcard teams would be your Orioles, the Yankees, and the Blue Jays with the Angels and the Astros out. What do you think? life's tough in the American League East, man. You know, I'm I'm pulling out my hair watching the Orioles lose an extra innings to the Reds. Like this, every game matters, truly. It really does, even at this point in the season. That's right. High stress living in the American League East. The all-star starters were announced yesterday, and the Texas Rangers have four starters. Catcher Jonah Heim, Marcus Simeon, their second baseman, Corey Seager, shortstop, third baseman, Josh Young. Uh, so some really interesting developments among the starters. We're going to be talking about that with Carl Ravage coming up. Clayton Kershaw spoke with reporters about having a cranky shoulder. Uh, he got a shot at cortisone and he told reporters he hopes to make his next scheduled start. Uh, he carried a no hitter into the sixth inning in his last start in Colorado and left the game after 79 pitches and just one hit allowed. The Phillies played the Cubs on Thursday, and Kyle Schwarber did in the first inning what Kyle Schwarber seems to always do in the month of June. 
33-year-old right-hander out of Dartmouth delivers his first pitch, and it's swung on and blasted. Right field corner, and this ball is going to be gone. It clears, and it's a leadoff homer for Schwarber on the first pitch of the night. His 21st of the year, a bullet. And it's one nothing Phillies. Scott Fransky, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Yeah, that would be Kyle Hendricks, the Dartmouth graduate uh, that he was referring to there. The Cubs and Kyle Hendricks did not recover after that, Philadelphia winning 3-1. to one. Astros faced the Cardinals. Adam Wainwright got pounded in this game. He was knocked out in the second inning, and Kyle Tucker went deep. The 2-0. And Tucker hits it in the air, pretty deep to right center field, and you can kiss that one goodbye. Ten rows into the seats for Kyle Tucker, a three-run homer, and the Astros lead it nine to nothing. On their way to a fourteen to zero victory over the Cardinals, that was Robert Ford on KBME seven ninety AM. Adam Wainwright has made ten starts this year, thrown a total of forty-eight and a third innings, has a seven point four five ERA. He had some interesting comments after this game. We'll hear those coming up. For the Mets, the problems continue. Uh, they were ahead 2-0 top of the sixth inning at City Field last night, and this is what happened next. And now Caratini. Swing a high fly ball. Deep center field. Nimmo back. We are tied. Victor Caratini with home run number four, and he evens the tally at two apiece. You heard the boos in the background. That from 620 WTMJ. The Brewers will go on take a 3-2 lead. Uh, the Mets threatened in the bottom of the ninth inning. Starling Marte at the plate. And on SNY, a fan was screaming at Marte, don't swing at everything. This is what happened next. And Williams coming back. Struck him out swinging with a changeup, and the ball game is over. 3-2 the final score, and the Brewers have taken 3-4 of four from the Mets. Devin Williams loaded the bases and got out of it. This was the day after Mets owner Steve Cohen spoke with reporters, and he talked about his perspective on what needs to come next for the Mets. I'm a patient guy, okay? Now, everybody wants you know, a headline. Everybody says, fire this person, fire that person. But I, I don't see that as a way to operate. Um, if you want to attract good people to this organization, the worst thing you can do is be impulsive, okay? And, and win the headline for the day and not, you know, overall, over time, attract, you know, you're not gonna attract the best talent because you're not gonna wanna work for somebody who, who, who has a short fuse. And I, I, listen, I know fans, that, you know, they want something to happen, I get it, but sometimes you can't do it, you know, because you have long-term objectives. We're going to be hearing more from Steve Cohen later in the podcast. You know who got it done on Thursday? The Rays in the series finale in Arizona. Josh Lowe with a hit in the top of the third. 2-2 to Josh Lowe. Swing and a line drive in the center. Dropping quickly. It'll fall base hit. Scoring from third, Rayleigh. Rounding third coming over Ramirez to throw. Not in time. It's a five-run inning for the Rays here in the third and still nobody out. They lead at 6-0 on the two-run single to center by Josh Lowe. That from 620 WDA, the Rays win that game 6-1. A great game between the Royals and Guardians. In the top of the 10th inning, Jose Ramirez was on third base. Score tied when this happened. Ramirez inching down the line. He's going to try to steal home. And he's out. 
Ramirez has challenged the play. He's got to ask him to, uh, to look at it again. This will be a crew chief review. The yeah, they've got asked to have it looked at. He oh, missed he him. She sure did. It looked like he oh got in there. Oh, my goodness. What a slide by Jose Ramirez. Looks like the fingers got to the corner of the plate before he tagged his forearm. After review, the call on the field is overturned. Runner's safe. Jose Ramirez, a steal of home, the call being overturned. So Cleveland was in a great position. They had a 1-0 lead, bottom of the 10th inning. Freddie Fermin at the plate for the Royals. Another 2-2 pitch. Fermin lines it down the third baseline. Fair ball. Isbell's in to score from third. Lopez runs to third. Wilson waves him around. Here comes Lopez to the plate. Throws up line. Lopez scores standing. Freddie Fermin wins the ball game. A two-run double in the bottom of the 10th inning. The Royals leap out of their dugout and celebrate on the left side of the infield. They come from behind and defeat the Guardians 4-3 in 10 innings. That from 6-10 KCSP. Pirates and the Padres. And the Padres, as they always seem to do, they had an early lead, top of the second inning. Odor at first base with two down. One nothing Padres in the second, and this one's hit in the air to deep right field. Davis will turn around and watch this one. Gonna go! A two-run homer for Trent Grisham, and a three-run second inning for the Pods. That from 97.3, the fan, but that lead would not last. Here's the 0-1. Swinging a ball, hit to right, falling fast, sticks it over, can't get a base hit. Henry Davis comes through with the RBI single to give the Pirates the lead. Five to four. Sports Radio 93.7, the fan, the Pirates beat the Padres five to four. The Yankees won on Thursday, 10 to four. Uh, the day after, Domingo Herman made history. Here was the bottom of the ninth inning. Ryan Rucco at the microphone for the Yes Network. Este Uri Ruiz stands in his way. Not long after that, Herman caught up with Meredith Morakovitz and talked about the night through a translator. Wow is right, Domingo. 27 up, 27 down. Tonight you became a part of baseball history, pitching the 24th perfect game. Can you describe the emotions you're feeling right now? So exciting, you know, uh, when you think about something very unique in baseball, you know, and not many people have um, an opportunity to to pitch a perfect game, uh, to accomplish something like this in my career, you know, something that I'm going to remember forever, be part of history. Uh, So exciting. Take me through that final pitch, that final out. Uh, Yeah, that last inning was very different, very different. You know, I felt uh, uh, an amount of pressure that I've never felt before. You know, I'm trying to visualize what I want to execute there at the same time that I don't want to miss, you know, so, uh, so much pressure, but yet so rewarding. Taylor, what else you got? 
Buster, I want to uh, promote a podcast that has not yet come out, uh, SV Pod. You should subscribe to the show now because it's going to be out 5 a.m. on Monday morning. Uh, he and Stanford Steve, that's Scott Van Pelt and Stanford Steve, talked to Tom Dolan, who is an Olympic two-time gold medalist uh, in swimming and now just a washed suburban swim dad. So a lot of talk about swimming uh, and your kids competing and he just had like a lot of like good, there was a lot of good dad talk in there, Buster. I feel like you would appreciate it, you know, watching your kids compete and, uh, you know, some good life lessons, uh, you know, all packed in there. So good holiday listen for everyone. Check that out, SV Pod, wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus Chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one and done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. The NFL schedule drops this week, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code BASEBALL. That's code BASEBALL. Download the app or visit VividSeats.com today. That's VividSeats.com today, code BASEBALL. Vivid Seats, experience it live. All aboard. It's the Ravi Train with Carl Ravitch. And the Ravi train is back on its regular schedule after a couple of crazy weeks of the College World Series. Ravi, you're flying all over the place, uh, going to Omaha, going to L.A., back to Omaha. You finally have a bit of a respite. And I mentioned to you the other day that I was happy for you that, you know, given that you live in Connecticut, this weekend's game is at City Field. Because then you can at least get a little bit of a, an opportunity to settle in. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a big proponent of this week being at City Field. I know what some of the alternatives were. I'm excited about seeing the Giants, the Mets. The Mets, in, in a lot of ways, are one of the biggest stories in baseball. So I think there's a, I think there's a lot of good, uh, good reason to be at City Field, way beyond Carl Ravitch's travel. But I'll be honest, <laughs> I'm grateful for the idea that I can be, as, as players like to say, in my own bed for a little while. But I will say this, this is sort of a capstone to the College World Series buster. Um, and with the draft coming up, it was, it was as, as exciting and interesting uh, College World Series as I've ever been a part of. And a lot of that had to do with the talent that was on the field. A lot of it had to do with the quality of play. And literally right up until the very end where the last two games, the average margin of victory was 19 runs, which makes no sense at all. But it was as good a College World Series as we've ever had, and I can't wait to see the crop of players we had there in the major leagues. 
Yeah, and I don't think there's any doubt that uh, what we saw in the College World Series, all the elite players, guys who are at the top of the draft, they're, they're going to absolutely launch the draft coverage this year. You know, there have been times when it's felt like the the Major League Baseball draft and the College World Series is disconnected, but not this year. Yes. It feels like no. it's leading right into it, which is absolutely perfect. Uh, what Vladimir Guerrero Jr. did yesterday, a home run for the Blue Jays, leads perfectly into you know his uh, announcement that he's going to be in the home run derby this year. We know that Julio Rodriguez, as we hoped for, uh, was going to be in the derby. He announced that last week, uh, given the fact that the game is in his home ballpark. Mookie Betts, we assume at some point, will officially announce that he's in the derby now that he's been named to the all-star team. I like the field that's shaping up, Carl. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great start with those guys. I'm assuming Mookie's going to do it. As, as you reported on Sunday Night Baseball, his wife is, uh, is a big motivating force and all that, and we know how important the, uh, the partner is in a relationship like that. Look, Mookie's got 20 home runs, and you know, Vlad Guerrero, when he participates in this thing, is absolutely a threat to you know, It's a great field. It's such a big event. I think there's going to be a ton of of excitement around the all-star game this year. There's not a lot of other things going on uh, this summer athletically, the women's world cup. And that's really kind of it. So I think, I think baseball's, you know, as you, as we've talked about, baseball's in the middle of a, of a real Renaissance period. The attendance is up. The ratings on Sunday night baseball are up. I think the home run derby in the summer always is a smash. So I love, I love where we're at right now. These things take time. Uh, we could have the announcement show and still have that wild card. Here are the seven we know. We're waiting on the eighth. And like David Ortiz occasionally would walk into the room and announce he's going to participate, let's see what happens uh, as, as we have our announcement show next week and where we are. But it's a phenomenal start to the Home Run Derby field. Yeah, and that show will be next Wednesday at 7 o'clock. I'll be on that show. Carl will be on that show. Eduardo Perez will be on that show. You know, our group that's going to be doing the Home Run Derby together. And, you know, Carl, since the last time we talked, you know, we found out Major League Baseball attendance is up 7.8% this this year. Uh, As you know, uh, what the metrics show are that people are not only are more people watching baseball, but they're watching for longer. And, look, uh, you know, you and I have criticized Rob Manfred uh, his comments last week about the Astros and the sign ceiling scandal, his regrets, the whole Oakland athletic situation. But there's no doubt. I, I mean, it's just, at this point, I think anybody who says that these new rules haven't impacted baseball positively, they're not paying attention, you know. And you might hear from some some managers privately about it. You might hear from a few players. But I don't think there's any doubt that this has turned baseball more quickly uh, than, than a lot of folks anticipated to a product that uh, fans like and are clearly responding to. Yeah, with all due respect to the manager and the certain players that, that don't like it, to some degree, they're not relevant in the equation. The point of the rule change was to appeal to your audience, not the yes. players, not the managers, but the audience. And the audience is receptive to it in a positive way. That's the end of the conversation. Now, if you want to tweak some of these things because of the input from players and managers, I would understand that. But let's recognize what the rule changes were designed to do. Increase the pace, therefore increase the level of participation from the fan, the person who pays to watch the games in person, watch them on their whatever platform they're watching them on. 
they are receiving them positively. That's where this conversation needs to end. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, yes, Rob Manford and uh, Morgan Sword and the competition committee and the rules committee, whoever was behind giving some thought and input into these decisions is worthy of praise. The problem for me is it took too long to get there. We've known this, you know, the seven inning conversation you and I used to have was basically about this. It's how do we attract more people? And you were kind of banging, banging some folks on the head with a hammer saying, are you listening? Are you seeing what's going on? And I think that they were. I think a lot of times they're very provincial in their ways and they're very meticulous in their ways. And it takes a longer time than you'd like to think to get to a place. But yes, give them credit. They got there. It's a phenomenal product. And as I said, Buster, Sunday night, and I know people joke about I jinxed it, that game Sunday night, having just come from a week's worth of the College World Series, that game Sunday night between Los Angeles and Houston was flying. I mean, we, we were on pace for about an hour and 58-minute game. It was flying. And I almost, almost felt like this is uncomfortably fast. Uh, clearly, it went to extra innings. There may have been other factors, the, sh- the shadows, getaway day. All of those things may have conspired to a lightning-fast game. But the point is, people who are paying to see these games like what they're seeing. The rule changes are working. The All-Star selection starters were announced yesterday, Carl. And I love the teams that were announced because it really shows you that the voting – uh, reflects what's happening in baseball this year, right? Yeah. When you yep. have the Texas yep. Rangers, one of the biggest surprise teams in baseball, have four starters, you know, including yep. Josh Young, their third baseman, uh, Marcus Simeon, Corey Seager, uh, catcher Jonah Heim. I think that's great that what we've seen this year was deciding in, in for fans who were voting. Orlando Arcia, the starting shortstop in the National League. Carl, the conversation in spring training was – whether or not he was going to be the guy or was it going to be Vaughn Grissom or somebody else, and he winds up being a guy who's going to be starting out in Seattle. I love the fact that the Rays are going to have two starters, Yandy Diaz, Randy Rosarena, uh, because there have been years when you and I have, have seen these all-star teams, and you're talking about guys who you know had their best years two or three years before the year they were all-stars. Here's a couple of things about baseball to go along with the rule changes and the selection of these guys to the All-Star game, and the success of the teams that they're on. Baseball, through its rule changes, has become a much more athletic, and as a result, young game. You look at the teams that are having success. Um, The Orioles, the Diamondbacks, the Rays continue to have success. Josh Young in Texas. It is a young man's game now, and I don't use that term because of Josh Young. It is a much more athletic, young game. And it is reflected in the fan bases that are, that are voting their guys in. It is all well-deserved of the pl- people that are there. But to have Jonah Heim and Sean Murphy as your all-star catchers is a wonderful thing. You know, for years it was, 
it was warranted, but it was Pudge Rodriguez. Like, you could pencil him in every year. The idea that Yandy Diaz is the first baseman in the American League is a great thing. Like all of these things, Buster, are great for the game. As a, as a tangent, you know, on the Today Show today, uh, they had as big a crowd as they've ever had for a musician, and it was a performer named Carol G. And there are many people who I know that are my age who don't know who Carol G is, and yet she packed the place with more people than anyone else has ever packed the place. The point is, there's a whole new generation of player that's appealing to this larger, growing base now for Major League Baseball, and it is absolutely huge. The fact that Luis Arise is a Miami Marlin and is an all-star yes. is fantastic. Like, he deserves to be there. Let's let's do this on deserves to be there. That's the beauty of what I when I look at the All Star selections for the starters. Again, there are more people going to games and watching, so their voices are being heard, and it is phenomenal. It's it's a wonderful thing to see the reflection of these crowds and the idea that Corbin Carroll is going to be an All Star starter in Seattle about 25 minutes from where he grew up, it doesn't get any better than that. Other than Corbin Carroll saying, I'll do the home run derby too. But other than that, it's an unbelievable all-star starting lineup reflective of where the game is right now, and we all win because of it. It's great. Boy, that would be fun if Corbin Carroll did it. <laughs> you know, it, it, it would well, be great. And it is- this time of year, I get very selfish because I this is our event, and – I, you know, I think I have a, a pretty good idea of what would be cool. I, I, I don't know that Car- Corbin Carroll does at all well in it, but you know what works. I mean, Ellie De La Cruz would be a really cool home run derby participant if, let's say, uh, Shohei Otani is not going to do it. Okay, I, I understand that. So what, what's, the, what's another great way to make this event resonate? Ellie De La Cruz is like the biggest story in baseball or one of them. Well, let's put him on the biggest stage, which is the home run derby. Let's put him there. That, that's how you make that event great. They all don't need to have, you know, 22 homers at the break. That, that's not what makes a great home run derby. Matt Olson has already done the derby. He hasn't done well in it. Doesn't mean if he did it again, he'd be the greatest, but because he's amongst the leaders in homers doesn't mean that having Matt Olson versus say an Ellie De La Cruz or somebody else is the right answer based on, we need the top eight home run hitting guys. That's to me, wouldn't be the way to do the Derby. So yeah, that's Corbin Carroll, Ellie De La Cruz with regards to the Derby, but boy, the all-star, the all-star starters are just so good right now. On Wednesday night, Domingo Herman threw uh, a perfect game for the New York Yankees. And, and it was funny yesterday, Carl, they were losing at, following that perfect game on Wednesday night. And Thursday afternoon, they were losing. Uh, I think it was like in the fourth or fifth inning that they had a big inning. Josh Donaldson hit a monster home run. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking, is that played out like, oh, my God. If they go to Oakland and lose two to th- two of three to the Athletics while having a perfect game, Yankee fans won't care about the perfect game. <laughs> it won't because it's against the Athletics. And Domingo Herman right. 
you know, a lot of, if you look at the list of perfect games, a lot of the perfect games thrown are against some of the worst teams in baseball. And so in that respect, right. Domingo Herman continued a tradition. Yeah. The, uh, look, there's a lot of, unfortunately, and these are self-sabotage. There's a lot of caveats when Domingo Herman, I'm, I spoke to a lot of baseball people the next day after that, and it was like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was against the A's, so that seems to be a uh, you know a negative in a in a perfect game. Which, by the way, as David Cohen points out, you know, you now have the the Yankee ball with the perfect games and Domingo Herman's names on it. Like he's going to be able to be in that conversation. He he earned it. He threw a perfect game. I don't care who you're playing. It ain't easy. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that go into it besides your ability to throw the pitch that night. You need you know you need good luck, and he had some of that. All those things he threw a perfect game. Like you cannot take that away from him. But he also in his in his ledger had a variety of things that people will look at and be like, well, God, I you know there's there's just not a lot of there's a lot of reason not to throw your arms up and celebrate you know wholeheartedly because of because of the things from his past. And I understand about forgiveness and second chances. Again, second chances are one thing, and he's getting one. He's pitching at the major league level. He's able to throw a perfect game. It doesn't mean that uh, that you just forget all the things that have happened. And you know, that's part and parcel for, for steroid users and all-stars and, and Hall of Fame. They all still fall under, this is my life, and there are ramifications and things that come along with the decisions I made. So, yeah, I, the Oakland A's part of it is, is certainly a big one, too. I mentioned this Sunday we've got the Mets and the Giants from City Field, and the Mets this week have been uh, uh, in a source of a lot of conversation because they continue to spiral uh, downward yeah. to the degree that Billy Epler, the general manager, came out, spoke with the reporters. And then on Wednesday, Steve Cohen spoke with the reporters, and he talked about the frustrating start to the season. Give a listen. It's been incredibly frustrating. Um, you know, uh, listen, I, I watch every game. I see what's going on. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, if you ask me, you know, would I have expected us to be in this position at the beginning of the season, the answer is no. But here we are, and, you know, hopefully we can right the ship. And, and uh, you know, listen, we have quality players. Uh, for some reason or another, they're not yelling. When we pitch well, we don't hit. When we hit, we don't pitch well. Um, it's it's kind of weird. I mean, it's actually very strange to me. And I don't know if the players are anxious. Um, I don't know if they're pressing. I mean, I assume there's a, that's a little bit of that. We see a lot of mental errors that what I call enforced errors. I, you know, obviously we can clean that up. Um, we've lost games because of it, and you know, there's nobody to blame, and it's really across the whole team. I thought, uh, Carl, that he had a very circumspect evaluation of his team, a very even-keeled evaluation of his team, made it clear he's not firing Epler during the year. He's not firing Buckshow Walter. Uh, he talked about a collective failure of the players, and he made it clear, too, that, you know what, if we start to play better, then maybe we'll look to add. If we don't start to play better – then we'd be crazy to try to add. And if we're in a position where we're not competing, then, yeah, we're going to look at a potential sell-off. I thought he was terrific the other day. What about you? Huh. Yeah, I, Buster, I couldn't agree more. I, I thought when in listening to it and I listened to the whole thing and watched the whole thing, I, I thought he, I thought he like, nailed. You know, a lot of times you look back on press conferences 
whether it's a, a sports figure, a political figure, um, somebody nailed the press conference. I, I was I was so impressed with his level headedness, with his thirty thousand foot view from a guy that is a noted Mets fan. You know, regardless of ownership, which let's just put that aside for one second. We know Mets fans. They are pissed. They, they are furious. They'd love to see people fired. Like, that's the knee-jerk, old George Steinbrenner, owner of New York sports team kind of reality, if not fantasy. Cohen was just the 180 of it from a Mets fan perspective. Because as, as frustrating as it is and as quote-unquote weird, which was an interesting word because – Like that's not a that's not a real riled up, passionate, screw this, my team's way better fan. It's more of like it's oh, this is weird. It's such a detached view from somebody who's so attached. Now let's go back to the ownership side. Uh, a couple of things he said indicate to me he's leaning in a direction that would eventually lead to significant changes. One was maybe they're playing tight. Well, who creates that environment? That's the manager. Uh, they're not gelling. Gelling's a word that's associated with a lack of chemistry. Who, who creates that? That's kind of the GM recognizing the people in the room and the manager. So I think he showed a hand a little bit as to what direction, if this thing continues to, to go sideways, he would go. Um, and he also then said, Like, it's on the players. You know, he acknowledged he can't throw or hit. He knows his manager can't throw or hit. He knows Billy Epler can't throw or hit. Um, when you watch the Mets, which I've done, you know, a lot and certainly focused on them this week, there are names coming out of that bullpen that I'm unfamiliar with generally. I mean, I, I know them because we cover the sport. But generally, like, wait a minute, I, who, who are these guys And when you compare them to the Giants, the team they're going to play, the Giants' bullpen has been unbelievable. The Mets' bullpen, and again, you want to pin it on Diaz's injury in the spring? Fine. It, it, they're not comparable. And that's a huge difference between the Giants and the Mets. I thought Cohen was fantastic. And if I, I would be more encouraged if that was my team to know that that guy was in charge. Everything he said was what I'd want to hear from my owner. Everything. Yep. I, I thought he was terrific, and he really uh, gave me an insight into uh, the decision-making they're going to be making, and they got to do it within the next three or four weeks. The Mets basically have two and a half to three weeks to turn it around. If they don't, then I do think you're going to see some sort of a modified sell-off. All right, before you go, I want to ask you about Adam Wainwright, who now has a 7-4-5 ERA after 10 starts. Uh, he spoke with reporters after the game about a conversation that Ollie Marmol, his manager, uh, had with him. When you're walking off the mound, and Jeff, or John mentioned the uh, cameras capturing the dugout, but also captured Ollie coming up to you and having a conversation. It was brief, but it seemed to impact you pretty well. How important was that? Yeah, it was good. I mean, I, you know, those get my age, you just wonder sometimes if people have have lost faith in you, you know, and uh, that's what he walked over and said he didn't, he hadn't lost faith in me and, and um, still believed I was going to finish strong and going to help this team win a lot of games, which that's what I asked him. I said, hey, just don't give up on me, you know, and uh, he said, I'm not giving up on you until this is over. So 
Did you feel like you needed to hear that in that moment? Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, everybody needs some words of affirmation now and then. And, uh, you know, after a game like that, yeah, I would say I probably did need to hear that. Yeah, and, and he's certainly someone who has earned that as well, Carl. Uh, Ali Marmol, after the game, basically told, told reporters, you know, I know people were ready to give up on him. I'm not one of those. I think it's more complicated and more nuanced than all that. I think the Cardinals are basically have their backs against the wall at this point. And if they have something tangible that they feel like that they can correct with, with Adam, then I absolutely, you know, then Ollie's right. Put him out there for his next scheduled start. If they don't have that, if they're just hoping for different results, uh, I, I, I kind of think they have to figure out a, a path where they buy him some time to find those corrections, right? We've seen the Dodgers place Noah Syndergaard on the, on the injured list with a blister issue. It's the longest blister issue in the history of mankind, I think. Uh, you know, clearly they're, they're trying to find a fix. And I, I think that's my, my follow-up question to all this is, what is the change going to be? Because this is a team that has no margin for error right now. Adam Wainwright is a Hall of Fame person, and he is a fantastic pitcher. And, Buster, I, I think Adam Wainwright has, in years past, proven, even at an advanced age by Major League Baseball standards, he, he can figure this stuff out. We've seen postseason appearances where you're like, how's he going to do? And he just nails it. Um, he's earned the benefit of the doubt, to your point. The Cardinals have no room for benefit of doubt. Like, we, we need wins. Like, we have to know that when we go to the mound – we have a really legitimate chance to win. And the way he's pitching, he would acknowledge, don't give up on me doesn't mean don't give up on me today. It is just hang with me. I'll figure this out. You, you just can't afford the opportunity to figure out at the major league level, which is where I think your point is really well made and well taken. We've got to find a place where Adam Wainwright can figure this stuff out and then we can bring him back. The, the problem for them may very well be there's, there's nobody else who's a, who's as good or better alternative like that's a problem. So uh, I, I don't, I haven't lost any faith uh, in him. I think he will do it. The problem is they have zero margin for error. And like the Mets, th- th- there is no time to do this. And that's, that's their biggest issue. All right, Carl, thanks for doing this. And I will see you at the ballpark on Sunday. All right, guys. Thank you. Carter Hawkins is the general manager of the Chicago Cubs. Carter, how you doing? Doing wonderful, Buster. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and thanks for joining us. I, I texted you before that I kind of wanted to use the time that we have together to give listeners a chance to, you know, to to get inside the mind of someone who's in a front office because at this time of year, so much of the conversation in the media is who's going to be a buyer, who's going to be a seller, is this guy going to be available, is that guy going to be available. And I wanted to to use you to help uh, give them all insight into how the process plays out. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to uh, to dig in. All right. So generally, we always in the media were like, well, this team should be a buyer. This team should be a seller. How do those conversations take place within an organization? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, as you mentioned, this is a really, really interesting time of year. I think it's even more interesting right now, just given the fact that we have a draft in 10 days. You know, so there's this weird split focus on two of the, you know, I think the draft is probably the most significant decision that we'll make this year or any team makes in a given year. Um, but the actual impact of that decision is not felt until four, five, six, seven years down the road. But then obviously these near-term decisions that are also really impactful in the trade deadline. 
it's difficult because for the most part, you know, you have your teams that are 100% playoff odds, 100% that they're going to be contenders for the World Series. You have other teams that are zero, right? They just know coming in that they're going to win 60, 70 games and just aren't going to have a chance to compete. And then all the rest of us um, are kind of in the middle of that and trying to figure out where am I within this scheme of buy, sell, uh, try to compete, not compete, all of these different things and trying to factor in this year and future years. And that's the reality of the situation is you know, when we really boil down to it, it's about what do I want to do to this year to make an impact on the future years. And so if you're making this year better, you're most likely, unless you get really lucky or just the best trader in the history of the world, you're most likely hurting future years. If you hurt this year, you have a chance of making future years better. And so that's the general kind of first principles of the conversation. And then you have to figure out, well, where are we in that spectrum? Where are we in terms of where we are this year? Where are we in terms of 24, 25, 26, 27? And the further out you get, the more noise there is and the less certainty you have in, in that kind of prediction and that forecast of your team. Um, but you have to try to be as objective as you can about that first and foremost. At the same time, in order to even play the game, you have to be present. And so you have to be calling all of these other 29 teams to try to make sure that you have an understanding of should you go in either direction, what your opportunities are in terms of what do other teams like, what do other teams don't like, what are they looking for, what potential trade partners do we have, are there opportunities for three-way deals, what teams are potentially taking on money, what teams cannot take any more money on. And so you have this parallel process while you have a draft going on as well, um, trying to both figure out the landscape of this year for all the other teams and the landscape for your team in terms of this year and years into the future. So it gets complicated. You try to simplify it down to, do we help this year to hurt next year? Or do we hurt this year to help next year? Um, and then given that direction and when we make that decision, what are our opportunities? So just to follow up on, on some of that, uh, my sense is from talking with a lot of your peers that this time of year specifically, the, the beginning of, of July, uh, about 90% of the oxygen within organizations are taken up by the draft. Is that fair to say? I think that's really fair. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And then once we get to the all-star break, you know, the draft happens on Sunday, starts on a Sunday. Once we get into the Wednesday, Thursday of the all-star break, that's when teams really will begin to dive headlong into trade process. Yeah. Yeah. I think realistically, so the draft is Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Um, you know, the big night is Sunday, you know, the big strategic day is, is really Monday is we have, you know, kind of the, I think it's the next nine rounds roughly. Um, and then that Wednesday is your, or Tuesday is your last you know, 10 rounds of the draft Wednesday, everybody sleeps. And then Thursday people are pretty much hitting the phone. So um, you know, I think that's uh, that's kind of a kickoff to the real trade deadline season. That said, there are certainly some GMs and presidents that are already, you know, hitting the phones and, and probably have their focus more on the deadline right now than the draft. But I would say overall, your percentages are probably right. It's probably 90-10 and I'll shift to 100-0 uh, come Thursday, uh, a week from this Thursday. So the buyer-sell question literally within an organization, um, my sense is, is that that it's not like you guys have a big meeting with everybody and say, okay, we're going to be buying or we're going to be selling. It's something that almost happens daily and sort of develops over time. 
Yeah. I mean, think of it like a, almost as like a stock ticker where, you know, things are going up and things are going down on a daily basis. Um, you know, you kind of have this idea of where it's going to land or the true valuation of this company. Um, but at the same time, you know, people can speculate and it can go way up and people can speculate and go way down. So you're constantly um, kind of monitoring that. But, you know, at the same time, you know, something might come across your desk that you have to make a decision on before you have a defined sense of where that valuation is ultimately going to end up. And that's when the difficult decisions, the fun decisions are in terms of, okay, like given the value that we can get for this, either for the future or for now, do we make this decision even not knowing what the future is going to hold? And we never know what the future is going to hold. So you're always speculating to some extent. So Carter, how do you prepare uh, multiple paths? Like you guys are kind of in that uh, on the fence right now in terms of being buy or sell. In terms of you preparing for both, how do you do that? I think what I found is that, I mean, you can make it really complicated. Um, and one of my favorite sayings is I, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Right? <laughs> and so it's like, how can you filter things down to something really, really simple? It takes a lot of work to do that. Um, and so what are we trying to filter down to and what we're trying to filter down to and the, all of the work from the entire year filters down to how much do we value our players and how much do we value the other team's players and how much do the other teams value their players and how much do the other teams value our players. And if you have those four data points, you can make really good decisions about kind of what side of the ledger you want to be on. Um, so as long as you're prepared on that end, you can really execute any type of deal. It's just, you have to know all the players and there are thousands of players and that's the difficult part. And that's where teams find their competitive edge. Do you guys specifically, will you uh, rank players based on the evaluation with other organizations, rank players uh, in terms of putting, putting them in groups? How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, I think by definition, if you have a value on a player um, or all players, if those values are, are good and granular enough, then that's going to just create a ranking of those players. Part of creating that valuation of the player is, it's a little bit meta, but is actually ranking the players. Um, and so certainly that's part of it. Our scouts are constantly putting pref lists together. That's pretty ubiquitous around the league. Um, you know, our front office is putting lists together of what they feel. And you know, that's kind of all going into this big pot of, of information synthesis um, that whittles down to that short letter that takes a long time to get of how much do we value this player. Um, but yeah, that definitely ends up in, in some sort of lists. You got to figure out how much you value different things in terms of how much do you value wins today versus wins five years from now versus wins 10 years from now. You got to predict a little bit where the market's going to go in terms of what's free agency going to look like five years from now in terms of the cost of a win. You have to predict, um, you know, are teams going to continue to pay for pitching in the way they do or pay for position players in the way they do. So there's a lot of market predictions that go into that ultimate valuation of a player that again, can get really complicated, but just trying to get down to that. What do we value this player at? And then make decisions based off of that. So I think you'd agree with me that part of the reason why you got this job with the Cubs was because of the time you spent with the Cleveland Guardians, uh, you know, consider me one of the foremost organizations, one of the best front offices, and they have a reputation in the sport. Uh, as you know, they're really good at executing trades that when they trade one of their veteran guys, They'll get good return. Guys will help them. Uh, what do you think, when you look back on it, your time there, what do you think they do well in that regard to put them in that position? 
yeah, they, they know players. Um, they know how much they value players. They know how much other teams or have a sense for how much other teams value their players and are able to find those, those mismatches and, and are willing to make really difficult decisions, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to trade, you know, at the time, uh, number two, number three starters, guys like Mike Clevenger, guys like Trevor Bauer at the time, it was hard to make those deals in terms of they were really productive pitchers that were in what others would say was the prime of their careers um, and sending them away while you have a team that you're hoping to compete with. Um, that doesn't sit well uh, in the, the media. It doesn't sit well with the fan base until those players end up, you know, being Josh Naylor or those players end up being all these guys that are helping your team win. And so it talks about that lagging effect of these decisions, kind of like the draft, right? You make a draft decision in 2016, it's affecting you today. You know, Ellie De La Cruz is doing a great job for the Reds right now. That decision was from 10 years ago you know, when he committed to, to being, being a Red, probably when he was you know, younger than, uh, than he is now, much younger, right? So that aspect of just trying to be patient and realizing, I was telling um, one, of our, uh, one of our sponsors the other day in London, he was asking about some philosophical things. And I said, basically, it's, a, it's the big marshmallow test which, you know, they give the four-year-olds where they put a marshmallow in front of the four-year-old and say, hey, you can have a marshmallow today or you can wait and have two marshmallows later today. And you're constantly making that decision. Do I want one marshmallow or do I want two marshmallows? There are times to take the one. There are certainly times to take the one. I mean, the 2016 Cubs took the one and that was a pretty good marshmallow for them. Um, but that's definitely the decisions that we're, we're trying to make and the challenges of, of these times, but what, what makes it fun and, uh, fulfilling ultimately as well. So my perspective as someone who's covered the sport for a long time is that a very underrated part of what happens in the month of July or during the off season are the relationships between particular executives. <laughs> like it's a major X factor because you'll hear that, uh, you know, executive A doesn't really talk that much with executive B appear with another team, or maybe two guys have a great relationship. Uh, tell me about how much in your eyes that's a factor. Yeah, if you boil down to that question of how well you know the players, how well do you value the players, and the question is like how are you getting that information or how are you getting the information about how other teams value other players. And, you know, certainly you can read all of the, you know, media and internet and those types of things, which I think there's definitely information to be gleaned from that. You can, you know, believe, you know, scouts and coaches and, and guys that are on the ground. And there's definitely information to be gleaned from that as well. But, you know, the best information are the guys that are actually guys and girls that are actually making the decisions um, and your ability to pick up the phone and, you know, kind of chat for 30 minutes with somebody like you're going to ultimately get some decent information out of that. And I think both parties understand it. Um, and there's, you know, at times a little bit of horse trading that happens, but uh, it's definitely much easier to horse trade with somebody that you're really comfortable with than somebody that you're uncomfortable with. Um, so I absolutely would agree that that's, that's a big part of it. And you know, I think the the GMs and the presidents that have the relationships with more GMs, like they get better information and now they have to make great decisions with that good information, but it's definitely a leg up. Yeah. Especially when you're talking about working toward a deadline, when we get to, you know, 12 o'clock before a four o'clock deadline and everyone's working under, under pressure that those, those relationships can, uh, can work out. Give me an example of, of someone that you've seen who you really feel like is good at that sort of communication. I mean, so obviously I was with the guardians for 14 years and, you know, Chris is Antonetti is, you know, in, in my opinion, and, you know, Jed would not take offense to this, you know, probably the best 
uh, executive in baseball. Um, just his ability to help people be the best versions of themselves, um, help guide an organization towards a vision to empower people, but to also give you the opinion at the right time, the right way um, is really impressive. And, you know, Mike Turnoff, myself, Matt Foreman, James Harris, all of us were really lucky to be able to work for him. And then obviously, obviously all the guys that, you know, the Derek Falvey's and Ross Atkins and people spread out throughout, uh, throughout the sport. But um, yeah, I mean, he's so unassuming. Um, and uh, from a standpoint of, he never makes you feel like he's smarter than you or that he's trying to make you feel like he's smarter than you. Um, he's so thoughtful. Uh, it's just an easy conversation. And, you know, I think that resonates with, you know, other people in leadership and, you know, for that reason, he's really respected around the game and, you know, is able to access a lot of information and uses it wisely, um, you know, in a way that never feels like people are taking advantage of. And that's a pretty special skill. All right, Carter. Well, thanks for your time. This is fun. Uh, and I uh, appreciate you uh, helping us get some insight into what you do. My pleasure. Thanks, Buster. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how you doing on this Friday? I'm doing great, Buster. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, it's the morning, and it means that uh, as soon as my alarm goes off, I feel like I've already had six cups of coffee, and then I add six cups of coffee, <laughs> and I take off even more. And we were talking about this before we started. I'm definitely a morning person. You, on the other hand, you're someone you are a night owl. Uh, I was asleep when Herman threw the final pitch of that perfect game. I, I imagine you, your adrenaline was going full speed. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I stay up to watch every game. I do not get going nearly as early as you do. I've said, I believe, on this podcast, pretty much the only thing I'll wake up for, other than maybe a cross-country flight to go to a baseball event, is to wake up and do this podcast, which, of course, I'm always glad and so honored to do. But, of course, I mean, after that perfect game, I was writing up our story from LP.com, with a bunch of uh, fun facts with a couple of my colleagues, making sure we had every angle covered, updating stories, doing all of that. So uh, certainly was not asleep for that. But I was wondering, I mean, you know, you get a New York pitcher pitching a perfect game on the West Coast. I'm sure there are a lot of people who woke up to that news who were Yankees fans and were pretty surprised. Yeah. Uh, and during his no hitter, our text group, I actually was awoken by a text when he got into the seventh inning. And it was from I can't remember if it was from a uh, Carl or Eduardo Perez, but they texted David Cohn and they were like, are you rooting for it or not? Because, you know, uh, it, the more people throw the perfect game, the less special maybe it might feel. And Coney made it clear he was rooting for Herman to finish that perfect game. All right. Let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is 10. So we'll start with Domingo Herman and that perfect game. So he had allowed 10 runs in his previous start. So one of those stories I was making sure we updated on MLB.com was about the unlikeliest no-hitters in MLB history. And I know the, uh, the eighth lineup. I know everything going on uh, with that team offensively. But I still think even given that, this was one of the most unlikely no-hitters, let alone perfect games in MLB history. And this stat shows you. So 24th perfect game, of course, with the first by a pitcher to have allowed at least 10 runs in his previous start. And of course, 24 small sample size. But there have only even been Four no hitters, so non perfect no hitters, where the pitcher had allowed at least 10 runs in his previous start, and they were a while ago. So, 1937, Bill Dietrich had allowed 10 runs in his prior start. 1893, Bill Hawk, 14. And then the last two, again, or before the mound, was even at its current distance. We had 1884 Sam Kimber allowed 11 runs and 1884 Frank Mountain, great name, also allowed 10 runs before he threw a no-header. So even if we expand it and take out the perfect game qualifier, this is something that not happened since 1937 when the entire baseball world looked very, very different. So Certainly very improbable, not what anyone was expecting tuning into that game. Number two. Number two is two. We'll go with two. So we got all-star starters announced yesterday. I love this stuff. I mean, I love the all-star game. I've talked about that. I love the home run derby the most. And we got Vlad announcing yesterday and Mookie becoming official, but I love the entire All-Star game, All-Star Week. 
because it's pure hype and I love it. It's positive. It's happy. It's awesome. So one of those things we got is that two rookies are slated, were voted in to start the All-Star game. We have Josh Young of the Rangers, who will be the second ever rookie third baseman to start an All-Star game, joining a guy named Eddie Kazak. I should have looked up a pronouncer, but I'm not sure we have him. For 1949, who was the only other to do so. And we have Corbin Carroll of the Diamondbacks. So the two is actually for the two of them. They will be the second ever duo of rookies to start the same All-Star game, joining Kazuko Fukudome and Giovanni Soto, who were, of course, teammates on the Cubs in 2008, which also means it's the first time we'll have a rookie on each side. And just overall, to the point of rookies, the last rookie to start an all-star game at any position was Aaron Judge back in 2017. So even with the amazing crop of young players that we have had over these last handful of years, it hasn't happened since Judge in 17, which I think is incredible. And these two guys are so deserving. So I just love that. Number one. Number one is three. So another All-Star note we have is that there will be three Braves starting the All-Star game with Orlando Arcia, Sean Murphy, and Ronald Acuna Jr., who we already knew because he was the leading vocator in the National League. This will be the first time that the Braves have had three or more starters not pitchers, so three or more position player starters since 1960. That blew me away. I mean, obviously, we know they had outstanding pitching in the 90s, but they also had really, really good players. And the fact that any time they had three all-stars in the 90s, in the 2000s, and included a pitcher, and there weren't three position players, absolutely blew me away. So 1960, Henry Aaron, of course, Joe Agcock, Del Crandall, and Eddie Matthews, and Orlando Arcia. I love this story. Yep. I know that Braves fans were voting a mass, but he deserves this. And you go back to spring training. He basically got that job by default, right? Because Von Grissom and Brendan Shoemake didn't quite show what they wanted in spring training. He gets a job. He runs with it. And now he's going to be the fifth Braves player to start an all-star game. At shortstop, joining Edgar Renteria, Walt Weiss, Jeff Blauser, and Eddie Miller. I love that for him. And it's just incredible. Sarah, I agree with you. You know, I had a conversation near the end of spring training with Alex Atopoulos, the head of baseball ops for the Braves, and asked him about Arcia and why he was a shortstop, because that was a surprise, right? Yeah. And I love Alex's answer. He's like, he's earned it. And we asked him when they signed him to come over and make some swing changes. We asked him to make some changes the way that he was throwing. He went to the minor leagues. He served as a part-time player in recent years, and he just got better and better and better. You know, if you had applied to ask for metrics on him in 2021 or 2022, you never would have 
uh, anticipated that he would become the type of player he's been this year. But, you know, from the Braves perspective, you know, they had options, but they looked at him and said, hey, you know, he, he's a guy who has put himself in this position. And what a contract. <laughs> Three years, $7.3 million at about the time, Sarah, that they made the decision to, to uh, install him as their shortstop. So credit to the Braves for believing in the player and helping him get better uh, and uh, for helping to put him in this position. Uh, before you go, I got a question for you. We talked about Domingo Herman throwing a perfect game. You talked about how improbable that was. You're talking about a guy who throws a ton of curveballs. The ball is put in play against him. Among all pitchers, okay, among all pitchers, who do you think might be the best candidate to throw a perfect game? Oh, my goodness. I'll give you mine, okay? It'll yeah. buy you a little bit of time. Yeah. I'm going to say Marcus Stroman of the Cubs. Because he's at that age where, you know, his manager, uh, whoever that would be right now, it's David Ross, would feel comfortable pushing his pitch count. You know, Marcus's personality, he absolutely be pushing for that if he got into seventh or eighth inning. Uh, and he gets the he makes opposing hitters put the ball in play. And on a given day with the Cubs defense being really good, I could see him being in position sixth, seventh, eighth inning where his pitch count is under control. And he's got a lot of weak contact. Does that make sense? Yeah, I love that logic because as much as, I mean, I love the Spencer Schrader, Shane McClanahan's, you name it, the guys who get a ton of strikeouts. And I mean, they're so much fun to watch, but that does really push up the pitch count. And that puts you in a spot where it's going to be hard to get through nine in that way and still be, Absolutely dominant. I mean, they wonder if maybe it's Brantford Valdez is another example. Yeah, you're right. To your point, but I love that. I mean, you know, they're going to prove us wrong. Someone else is going to go out there and do that. But I mean, to the improbable point, you just absolutely never know. And by the way, I mean, huge credit to Brian Bayo yesterday who had a no-hitter through seven innings against the Marlins, who <laughs> have a guy hitting close to 400. I mean, not a perfect game, but it was amazing. These things kind of come in spurts. You never know, but it felt like we might have back-to-back -back days with at least no-hitters, and that was really, really fun to watch as well. Yeah, Brian Bayo, I think, is the best thing that's happened for the Red Sox in a disappointing yes. season, watching him get better. All right, Sarah, thanks for doing this. We will talk to you Monday. Thanks so much for having me, Buster. Todd Radom is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all across America, all around the world. Or you can go to his website, toddradom.com. Todd, how are you doing this week? Good morning, Buster. I'm well. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm in New York. Got a busy day, busy weekend scheduled. Uh, great Sunday night game this week. The Giants, who are surging against the Mets, who are nearing this crossroad, as I talked about with Carl Ravitch. Uh, I want to ask you about the Pittsburgh Pirates City Connect uniforms, because, man, every review that I saw over the weekend or over during this week, rave reviews, and it feels like the Pirates players really like them. What do you think? Raving reviews or rape reviews, Buster? Rave reviews. All right. It's shocking that people on the internet have opinions, isn't it? I mean, it's just <laughs> so surprising. So 
Here's where I come down. First and foremost, let's start with the fact that everybody hates everything new for the most part. And when it comes to City Connects, these are very polarizing. Um, you know, I mean, objectively speaking, you've got some that are, well, not even a bit, some are better than others. Let's put it that way. And let's know that when it comes to aesthetics, there is no right or wrong. It comes down to our own personal opinions and, you know, optics and all that kind of stuff. But here's where what I think about the Pirates. The Pirates, when they came out with their City Connects, did something that they had to do, Buster. They went and they look like the Pirates. They're in black and gold. Can you imagine if the Pirates trotted out there in anything other than black and gold? Black and gold are the official colors of the city of Pittsburgh. Literally, they unite the Steelers, the Penguins, and the Pirates, the city of Pittsburgh. You know anybody who ever been there. It's all about black and gold. So they get that right. Think about the fact that they look like the 79 Pirates. That's yes. not a bad thing. The no. last World Series championship in this club's history. So we start with all those things. And then we get down to, you know, kind of some nuanced stuff. There is a pattern in the in the on the caps and on parts of the uniforms, which I think is kind of nice. It's very subtle, it gives a little texture. But then we get to, as we always say, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And here's the ugly. P-G-H. Buster, I don't understand teams that lean into airport codes. Do you? No, I never. No, not at all. Uh, you know, because if there was a team, if the Hartford Whalers had a City Connect jersey, you're going to have BDL, right? No. <laughs> and you and you're a guy who spends a lot of time at airports. And let's face it, it's not a very pleasant experience. So anything that reminds me of EWR or LGA, no, nope, I'm not going there. And PGH telegraphs the fact that we're an airport, okay? Then I get into... to PIT, right? That's that's what you would have, PIT. Well, I think maybe, you know, there are some legal considerations that take you a little too close to the University of Pittsburgh. I don't know. Some people along the same lines have said, why don't you do Steel City? Well, I'm sure it's protected in some way, shape, or form by somebody, but something. There's got to be something. I don't know what it is. I didn't get hired to do it. But to move on from there, so you get this big PGH. There's a little bit of an arch at the bottom, which kind of makes it look all askew. But here we go, Buster. When the Pirates take the field of play the other night in these uniforms, they appear when they are batting with these batting helmets that are sort of half spray painted. They look like the Jaguars looked a few years ago in the NFL. And there is a giant PGH. They look like construction helmets. They look like somebody... Reminded me of one of those cars that you'll see parked on the street sometimes that somebody took a can of spray paint and painted a car in a matte finish, <laughs> right? So I always say that when it comes to design, art, architecture, music, any, you know, any of these things, there is a unifying thing that connects all of it, and that is restraint. Too much can be too much. Cooking, too. Too many ingredients, we say it all the time, can spoil the meal. That batting helmet? made the meal kind of, you know, I don't know, yucky for a lot of people. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. And I, that's why I ask you, because you, as you know, my brain doesn't work the way that yours does, or most people's for that matter, in terms of color and design and that sort of thing. So uh, I'm glad you pointed all that out. And I would say the Pirates struck it, uh, were, were fortunate in a great way that when they have these City Connect uniforms, that Andrew McCutcheon is wearing one of them. Because he just, you know, we both know uh, 
you know, how artistic he is. And it, he can pull off a look better than just about anybody, I think. Agreed. Uh, Striking. Right. And, and, and real quick, if you remember those Phillies throwbacks that he wore a few years ago and he's in the dugout and it's half on, you know, just look great. Nick. So that's a great point. All right, let's get to this week's Forgotten Field. All right, Buster, it was called the eighth wonder of the world when it opened in 1965, an idea seemingly as big as Texas itself. It was the world's first multi-purpose domed sports stadium, the world's largest man-made room, and it was twice as large as any single enclosure ever built before it. The Astrodome, Houston's groundbreaking air-conditioned indoor stadium, has been described as the past's version of the future, an audacious testament to big thinking and the brainchild of Judge Roy Hoffines, who began to dream of a domed stadium as early as 1952. The superlatives go on and on. The Astrodome's proportions boggle the mind. Half a mile around, 710 feet in diameter, with a ceiling that stands 208 feet above the playing surface. When glare from the ceiling's 4,596 lucite panels interfered with play, Hoppines brought in Monsanto, who installed a new artificial playing surface, soon to be called AstroTurf. The Dome's $2 million animated scoreboard was a modern marvel, and it was huge, clocking in at 474 feet long and over four stories high. The Astrodome's quirks and amenities were legendary, too, including plush restaurants, 53 luxury skyboxes, and a nightclub. The ground's crew wore orange spacesuits. They were called the Earthmen. Ushers called spacettes dressed in futuristic flight attendant outfits. Officially named the Harris County Domed Sports Stadium, the Dome made its debut during an exhibition game with the Yankees on April 9th, 1965. President Lyndon B. Johnson nibbled on hors d'oeuvres and ate chicken and ice cream. Mickey Mantle hit the first indoor home run, and a new era for baseball was underway. The Astrodome begat other domed stadiums, but it remains the OG. Revolutionary, groundbreaking, and astonishing. It captured the public's imagination, and it still stands nearly a quarter century after the Astros vacated it for what is now Minute Maid Park. The Astrodome's future buster is uncertain at best. It was designated a state antiquities landmark by the Texas Historical Commission in 2017. The Astrodome Conservancy a nonprofit organization dedicated to preserving the building is looking for ideas on how to preserve and repurpose it. A series of proposals have come and gone over the years, and the dome sits in limbo, an unsolvable problem, too expensive to tear down while it awaits whatever comes next. Today, however, we think back to its glory days and remember the sheer chutzpah and big thinking that gave birth to the eighth wonder of the world, the Astrodome, which is this week's Forgotten Field. All right, I'm going to hit you cold with this. If you were to drop a proposal, what to do with the Astrodome? What would you suggest, given the the costs of the of the deconstruction that they would have to consider? King of the world with unlimited funds, Buster. Here I am. Make it into a living museum. Uh, reconnect the make the field playable for high school and college football games. Have the Astros play a series there every year. Get the asbestos out of the place, whatever icky things are lurking in there that were you know, part of what building in the 1960s, and get people back into it. Um, we know that America does a lot of things really well, but one of the things that we don't do well is that we dispose of our recent culture very, very rapidly. 
Uh, I recently had a conversation with somebody about Madison Square Garden in New York, right? Built in 1968. It's kind of ugly. It looks like 1968. But think of the millions of memories that have gone through that place. Preserve it in some way, shape, or form. Have it pay for itself to some extent and keep the uh, the dream alive. Because it really, Buster, came to define the city of Houston and the big dreams that Houston dreams to this day. And you're right about how big it is. I'll never forget, you know, when you go to a ballpark, you have to go in the media entrance. And I, I think I parked on one side of the Astrodome, was the, on the opposite side of where I had to go into the media entrance. And it felt like I walked across the whole state before I got to the media entrance, uh, completely drenched in sweat, as you can imagine. It was the middle of the summertime. I think it was uh, actually the last series before the 1994 player strike Padres were playing in Houston. So it is a, it is a huge place and I pass it every so often and you just, you kind of wonder, okay, what's going to happen with the, with the Astrodome. All right, let's get to this week's quiz. All right, guys, here we go. On Wednesday, we witnessed the 24th perfect game in the history of major league baseball. So here's this week's question. What was the name of the team that Worcester's John Lee Richmond threw the very first perfect game against back in 1880? Was it the Cleveland Browns, the Cleveland Gray Sox, the Cleveland Buckeyes, or the Cleveland Blues? This team got a perfect game thrown at them in 1880, the very first. The Cleveland Browns, the Cleveland Gray Sox, the Cleveland Buckeyes, or the Cleveland Blues? Sarah Abbott, I, I can look, uh, see your face, and it sent, looks like you know exactly what the answer is. Go ahead. I don't. I don't. Um, I'm going to go D, Cleveland Blues. Taylor? Mm, I was going to go D as well. I'll mix it up and go uh, A, Cleveland Browns. Okay. Uh, I was going to go D, too. I mean, we could make it, uh, if we all want to stay on the same page with this, Taylor, you know, you could change your answer. I'll give you an opportunity because I don't know what the answer is. I kind of thinking Buckeyes because that seems really simple, but I'm going with Blues. I'll stick with Browns. Okay. Taylor, you should have gone with Blues because it was the Cleveland Blues. It was. Nice. What are you doing? What are you doing? You drifted further back in the standings, Taylor. Come on, you could have helped serve. What a Buster two-time me and then changed his answer too, and it was wrong, and a lot of scenarios (laughs) going through my head right there. All right, Sarah, virtual high five to you. Yes. Way to go. (laughs) Well done, guys. All right, Todd, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Bleacher Tweets. Already, Buster, Bleacher Tweets for a Friday. Real Camp Drew writes in, Kyle Higashioka, shout out. No player has been in the Yankee system longer. He taught himself Spanish to better communicate with the Latin-born players, and he has to be one of the very few catchers to be behind the dish for both a no-hitter and a perfect game, right? Yeah, Higgy is one of the great people in the sport. Uh, You're 100% right about him learning Spanish so he can talk to Spanish-speaking pitchers. It was really cool to see him in the middle of that the other day. Uh, And uh, sadly, every time I see him, I always uh, am reminded of the first time that he appeared in the big leagues. I refer to him on air as Tyler rather than Kyle. And I have always felt bad about that. (laughs) Great regret. Oh, that's that's funny. Yeah, I'm sure he's over it by now. Hillel. Yeah, I don't think he cares at all. (laughs) (laughs) Hillel Armbarn writes in, will big teams like the Yankees and Mets need to consider doing rebuilds like the Orioles, Braves, Reds, Diamondbacks, Rangers? These teams are going to be great for a while. The Yankees and Mets seemingly can't buy their present or their future. 
Uh, for the record, no Yankee or Met team will ever tank. <laughs> ever. And keep in mind, yeah, I get it that the Yankees are, are not playing as well as what, how people expected. But remember, they haven't had a losing season since 1992. Mm-hmm. And as of this morning, Taylor, they would be in the playoffs. Yes, yes. That's that's why Yankees fans are uber annoying, is that they can't see the... Uh, well, I know, didn't say that. You said that. Yeah, okay. yeah. No, I said it. Taylor Schwink said Yankees fans are uber annoying. Yep. Put it, in, put it on a billboard. Um, you guys are a winning team right now. Ernesto Cedillo writes in Buster last week, you and various guests talked about how tight the seller's market will be because of the Cardinals and other teams that haven't fallen out yet. Do you think it would be wise for a couple small teams run by astute GMs like Cleveland uh, to retool and get value out of their veterans? And basically talking about Chain Bieber right here, the return would be insane and they could still compete for the division. That's why when we were just talking with Carter Hawkins, you know, I asked him because of his history working in that organization, what it is that Cleveland does so well that allows them to make great trades. I agree with you. And I, and I know their organization well enough to know they will ask those questions, right? They might be in a position to make the playoffs, but they're going to consider everything because that's what they need to do. Andrew DeSalvo writes in the Padres will be at the Rockies on August 2nd. How many of Juan Soto, Bob Melvin, Ruben Niebla, uh, Ryan Flaherty, and A.J. Preller will still be representing the Padres on that date. Yeah, I would say this. Uh, I just I, I don't see the Padres making all these sweeping changes. Peter Seidler, their owner, reminds me a lot of Steve Cohen and vice versa in terms of their perspective. Um, yeah, it's so funny. Ryan Flaherty, a, a bench coach, mixed in with the, the manager and the general manager in Juan Soto. So, yeah, I would say Juan Soto, if you're the Padres – because it doesn't feel like there's any momentum toward him signing. Uh, If you want to recoup some of the value for him, you're going to want to do that this summer rather than this winter. Mm. All right. Last one for the week here. Be good to each other. Writes in, just saw that Mitch Keller has 49 strikeouts looking. Second most in baseball uh, is 31. Not sure how to explain the skill. To what do you attribute that? So one of the cool videos that came out of yesterday with the uh, all-star teams being announced was the Pittsburgh Pirates, Andrew McCutcheon, uh, making an announcement in the clubhouse that Derek Shelton, their manager, was going to be is going to be an on the All Star coaching staff, uh, and I texted Derek this morning and I asked him, uh, "Be good to your question about Keller," and his response was execution of the fastball to multiple areas on the plate. So his fastball command in Derek's eyes has allowed him to freeze up hitters. And I would say this. You know, he's one of the lowest percentages of throwing fastballs of any pitcher in baseball. So opposing hitters are probably looking for his curveball, the cutter that he's developed, and he's just zipping fastballs over the corners of the plate. It's worked pretty well for him. Well, goodness gracious, Buster. I love when you go fishing for Bleacher Tweet answers. You're a man of the people. Everyone, enjoy your weekend. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets while you're watching games. We'll be back on Monday. That's it for today. That's it for this week. My thanks to Carter, to Rabbi, Sarah, Todd, Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to work against every single day. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.